Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical astrophysicist. At the University of Washington, she studies dark matter. She's also super involved in creating more inclusive and feminist approaches to scientific research. Just this March, she received the 2017 LGBT Plus Physicists Acknowledgement of Excellence Award for, quote, years of dedicated effort in changing physics culture to be more inclusive and understanding toward all marginalized peoples. It literally doesn't get more badass than that. For the Chaos issue of Bitch Magazine, which came out last fall, Dr. Prescott-Weinstein wrote about the chaotic construction of race in an article called The Physics of Melanin. The article looked at how melanin, the molecule that gives color to skin, has profoundly impacted human history, yet the properties of melanin itself have not been researched much. I called her up to talk about what the physics of melanin means and her thoughts on scientific research. I'm Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. I'm a theoretical physicist at the University of Washington who also does work on philosophy and history of science, particularly in relation to the participation of people who are traditionally marginalized outside of the mainstream scientific community. Okay, I want to talk to you about particle theory and your work as a physicist, but first I want to talk about earwax. <laughs> you start off your article, The Physics of Melanin, by talking about how if you were to categorize humanity based on a genetic trait, instead of skin color, we could be grouped by earwax. If you're like me, you might think that earwax is the same for everybody, but it's not. There are different types of earwax, which I never knew. And the texture and consistency of our earwax is just as determined by genetics as our skin color. Right. So I should actually say that this is an example that came from my husband at one point. Um, I forget how it, we got started, but we were talking about race and constructions of race. And I, I just want to be really clear that I think sometimes people say like, oh, race isn't real. It's just a social construction. But it's obviously like a very real social construction. Um, and it has physiological components to it. It now has an element of historicity to it. I identify strongly as black. I don't think that that is just a construction in my mind. Um, but the earwax example, I think it's really salient because it just shows that we could have organized ourselves differently, but um, that some people have dry earwax and some of us have wet earwax. And actually, you know, having one or the other comes with different advantages and disadvantages in terms of it, for example, getting stuck in your ear canal, it turns out. Um, and that's just not what happened, maybe partly because it's harder to see each other's earwax and we're not poking around in each other's ears all the time. <laughs> I love this because it shows like the absurdity of dividing and categorizing people based on arbitrary genetic traits. You know, the true absurdity is what we did with the organization on, on some level. Would we be so bothered by it if it didn't involve racism? Maybe not. Would it have happened without racism? I don't know. I mean, I actually think that those are all really interesting, um, you know, sort of futurist slash historical questions. But I think the, the important thing is that the organization happened and then it happened with the specific purpose of keeping people down and enslaving people and stealing people's land. And, and that's really where it gets absurd is that people then invented some really fantastical um, pseudoscientific ideas to justify what was really just about taking people's stuff. Well, let's talk a little bit about your story. Like, when did you get interested in physics? When I was 10, 
um, my my fifth grade teachers tried an experiment where they decided to put um, the students in the different fifth grade classes into electives. And so I decided to go into the science elective and immediately was really, really drawn in by the discussions of, there were two things I was excited about, photosynthesis, and then also um, how airplanes work, and in particular, the difference in pressure above and below the wing and how that leads to planes taking off. And at that point, I had already shown for years a pretty strong interest in math. And I just, I was like that nerd who did times tables for fun during my after school program. I just sat and wrote them out. So my mom noticed that I was really excited by my science class, and she was really interested in seeing this new documentary by Errol Morris called A Brief History of Time, which is about Stephen Hawking. It has the same name as his famous book. And so my mom took me to see the documentary, and halfway through the documentary, they were talking about black holes and how Einstein had never figured out. Um, what happened at the singularity or how to get rid of the singularity. And I had no idea that you could you could think about these sorts of things as a career. And I was just like, whoa, there are things that Einstein didn't figure out and I can get paid to worry about them. And um, I was sold. And so that's actually how I got interested in being a theoretical physicist. I walked out of the theater going, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and asking my mom for a copy of the book, which my uncle bought me for my 11th birthday. So over the years, I'm, you know, I, I made a plan. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a PhD. I actually sent an email to Stephen Hawking asking how to become a theoretical physicist. And one of his graduate students replied and explained to me that you had to get a PhD. And then afterwards, you became a professor in theory. I haven't, I haven't worked out that part yet. That's so awesome. You sent an email to Stephen Hawking as like an 11-year-old. I love that. I think like a really key piece of that was not so much that, you know, I sent him my transcripts and they were like, oh, this child is a genius, we must respond to her, but much more that I just felt like I was entitled to information and I asked for it. And I actually think that that can be a really key piece of success for scientists is just feeling like you even have a right to ask the question. Okay, so let's loop back to talking about um, that racist pseudoscience you mentioned before. Here's what I want to talk about is so science is a pursuit of objective truths and like the rules of the universe that are constant and unchanging. But as you so clearly point out, science itself isn't objective because it's always filtered through human experience. Scientists bring their own biases to their work. And yeah, what, what gets studied, what questions get asked, what evidence gets looked at, and what is taken for granted as obvious are all affected by that human filter, by our own subjectivity. And that's led over time to science being used to support a lot of false ideas like that you can tell how smart someone is based on their skin color or the shape of their head. I think that this is something that I feel really strongly about that I'm, you know, and, and actually because I'm a scientist, I feel like my responsibility is always to be thinking about um, what is, you know, about me and what is not about me. And I think that my role as a scientist is to kind of separate those things out. So I understand that, for example, the dark matter particle that I spend a lot of my time on, the axion, 
I work on that dark matter particle really for reasons that have nothing to do with, um, oh, the universe says that you should be working on that particle. That's not really how it works. It has to do with my preferences, kind of my professional trajectory, the questions that I ended up finding interesting. And so I really do think that what science gets worked on and the kinds of science, scientific questions that we ask depend on our perspective, our standpoint, what we've been exposed to, who we've been talking to. There are all of these human elements that come into the, the process of doing science. And I think that that raises a lot of questions, even, for example, when we're talking about the relationship between science and progress. Um, that what constitutes progress in your view really depends on your standpoint. It really depends on whether, you know, um, you think that you can make a profit off of global warming versus whether you think global warming is going to ruin where you live as to whether you think the technologies that have globally warmed the planet are progress as, as I think like a really accessible example. What, what constitutes objectivity is heavily influenced by our sense of culture and by the cultural context in which we exist. Like, I think it's really fascinating, for example, that cosmologists and people who work on questions in fundamental physics, um, like particle theory, are often thinking about questions relating to grand unified theories, what is the bigger, what is the thing that sews the universe together, and that often those people are simultaneously having conversations about, for example, God. Like Stephen Hawking, I think, is a really good example of a cosmologist slash particle theorist who has been known to talk about whether God exists on one or on more than one occasion and whether, you know, science can determine that God exists. And I really think that this happens in a, a Judeo-Christian context where we have this vision of the universe where there is a single unifying force and then everything comes down from that. It's actually, in a lot of ways, that visualization of the universe being organized in that way um, mirrors the um, Judeo-Christian picture. So I don't think that that's a coincidence. I don't necessarily, obviously I work in that area, so I don't necessarily think it's a wrong perspective, but I think it calls into question when we talk about objectivity. Um, I think that objectivity is almost unattainable. The piece you wrote for Bitch is about the physics of melanin, so let's start with the basics. What is melanin? I know that melanin is something that makes our skin the color that it is, but can you explain what melanin is exactly in terms anybody could understand? The melanin that is most familiar to humans is the kind of, is, is a molecule basically that gives color to our skin and to our hair. So our eyebrows and, um, you know, our eyelashes and the hair that grows out of our head and the hair that grows out of other places. And so that's actually, there are multiple types of melanin. Um, there's another type of melanin called neuromelanin that um, we find in the neural system. And actually it's still not understood what neuromelanin does. So, you know, for any young people who might be listening to this, I hope you'll think about figuring that out because I'm actually really deeply curious about it now. So melanin, yeah, the molecule that's particularly significant to both human history and the intimate details of our lives today, since we live in a white supremacist society, we're having less melanin in your skin, being lighter and whiter gives you access to certain privileges. Of course, though, the construction of race is about more than just how much melanin you have. And you write in your article that I like this quote, I'm just going to read it aloud. Black identity is a socio-geographic construct. 
with a real but tenuous connection to science. Can you break that down a bit? What is the real but tenuous connection to science? I think that I really wanted, you know, to make room for two different and important analyses that should work in tandem with each other, but often are um, divorced from one another in discourse. One is that, you know, we understand that blackness as an identity or as a racial construct um, is, is fairly recent in this in the greater scheme of human history and that it's very intimately tied to um the triangular slave trade the and and um uh chattel slavery in particular in um north america and in south america and central america um but at the same time that black is an identity that many of us um feel invested in in the black community so it's not just about the white gaze but it's also now about the black gaze and how do blacks relate to each other and how do we see ourselves in relation to one another and in relation to white people and to other people who are not black and so I, I, I wanted to highlight that there is this element of human construction to it and that in a lot of ways that's very unscientific because a lot of the sort of storytelling that went on in, in that context was, oh, having lots of melanin in your skin means that your brain is inferior and that all of these other things about you are inferior. And that's clearly um, garbage can pseudoscience. But at the same time, um, there is this real element of it that those of us who are part of the African di diaspora have, um, to varying degrees, often very strong relationships with un one another because of this this shared um, identity that is related to a certain type of melanin content and a certain geographic origin, but is not solely about how much melanin you have in your skin and, um, you know, how recently your ancestors were on the African continent. It's complicated. Yeah, it is. Going back to the slave trade, you write in the article that a curious feature of Enlightenment era Europe, a time that was marked by you know, both huge scientific interest and exploration, as well as colonial expansion and genocide. A curious feature of this time was the obsession, not just with conquering everything, but also with justifying that abdominable behavior. You say, quote, what had previously been the sole purview of religion increasingly became the domain of science. That really stuck with me. And I'm hoping, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so I actually think that this is an important point because I think, you know, especially in the context of the discourse about the science march and, um, you know, uh, threats to science real and perceived um, from, let's say, the religious right in the United States, that people often forget that it's a fairly recent phenomenon to separate religion from science and that actually for a long time those went hand in hand and you know i think that somebody might respond to that by saying well you know galileo was harassed by the church because he didn't do what the church wanted but it's also the case that a lot of the people that we look to as our heroes in physics were deeply Christian, deeply religious people, and that a lot of the people that we should be looking to as heroes in physics as well were um, were is 
very Muslim um, scholars. And so this the separation of religion from science is a fairly recent phenomenon. And I think that we do have to be careful about um, backdating that separation. So I think, in fact, what we are looking at is people using religion to justify basically this capital capitalist impulse to enslave people, steal land, um, and to justify racism. And that science often followed from that because it was convenient for science to work in tandem with religion and with the economic impetus for this kind of behavior. But I, I don't think that we can really separate those two things. I think eugenics was very much related to um, people's sensibilities about um, religious organization and the hierarchy of where people were in religious organization. And I think we can see this, for example, in, in the tradition of the Mormons that, um, you know, black people were basically like the devil's children, that there is a eugenicist component to that logic. One big thing you mentioned in the article is that there's not as much research that's been done about melanin. Even though it's had a huge impact on human life, melanin itself hasn't been the center of a lot of scientific research. So in your reading about melanin, what have you found that's interesting about the molecule itself that you want to know more about? I mean, I think it was sort of interesting writing this article, right? Because as a particle physicist, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about material science. And this is really kind of a material science question. So I should start by saying that in a lot of ways, just as much as, you know, bitch listeners and readers, I'm kind of an outsider to this conversation about the active research part. But part of what was interesting to me is that it's a it's a disordered conductor. And so it, it's a very simple example of the types of materials, um, the more complicated material superconductors, which can act as conductors and insulators, depending on how you tune the, the temperature. And this is an active field of research because it will possibly superconductors will allow us to deliver energy much more efficiently without loss along the way between, say, the source of the power and your household um, or your office or wherever. And it was sort of interesting going back and doing research while I was working on the article and realizing that even in review articles and scientific publications from the last 10 years, that people were really using really antiquated racist terminology in conversations about race and skin and um uh, phenotypes that I read the word mongoloid in an article that was, I think, from 2007 and was completely stunned that this was still acceptable terminology. <laughs> you point out in that piece that um, it's just in recent years that scientists have started studying melanin, and that's being driven by research into skin cancer, which mostly affects people without much melanin in their skin with white people. So why hasn't melanin been studied much over the years? I know that the answer to this will be racism, of course, in some regards, but like, in what way does that play out? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is sort of one of the ridiculous realities of our patriarchal, white supremacist, heterosexist society, that really basic, like really, really simple, basic, obvious, easy questions, like, 
um, you know, does this medication affect people with a different hormonal profile differently? And so, you know, to put that in, in terms that are maybe more familiar, that often medical studies only use male, only use people who um, are identified as cis men as their um, study subjects. And for that reason, um, people who um, have a different hormonal profile than the average cis man, we don't know how medications affect them in the same way. I think I think it's a very similar example that literally because the researchers have traditionally been cis men, that we know about the things that interest white cis men for the most part. And we don't know very much about the things that might interest a different set of people who are facing a different set of psychosocial and physical circumstances. So I'm just curious, what do you want to learn about melanin? If you could design a study into melanin, what would you look at? You know, I think that as someone who's an outsider to material science, I probably won't be designing any experiments using melanin. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most, and I think I talk about this in the, in the article, is how would it change the conversation about why anyone should, you know, care about physics if we were talking to people about the physics of their skin and particularly talking to them about the physics of why their skin is the color that it is and why some people's skin is the color that it is. And, you know, I think in like the more fantastical version of this, we talk to children about this and it becomes evident to children at a very young age that skin color has nothing to do with how your brain works and, you know, um, and that there's no programming in your skin color that makes you like rap music or not like rap music or speak a particular English dialect or speak a different English dialect, that kind of thing. So I think that one one way of thinking about this is how do we talk to the public about science and the relevance of science to them? That was Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein, who's currently doing research at the University of Washington, Seattle on dark matter. You can follow her on Twitter. Her name is at I-B-J-I-Y-O-N-G-I or at medium.com at Chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A. The music that we're hearing right now is from A Brief History of Time, the movie that started Chanda on her journey to physics. It's composed by Philip Glass. 